Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're getting into the fall spirit this week with a visit to Hogan Cider Mill in Burlington, Connecticut. The mill is off Spielman Highway on 10 beautiful acres. There are multiple barns on the property. One houses the old-timey store, mill, and upstairs tap room. Another is called the Red Barn Bar. The New England School of Golf is also on the property. It's where owner and cider maker Chet Dunlop coaches golfers. Chet owns Hogan's Cider Mill with his wife, Teresa Clifford Dunlop. Chet makes the non-alcoholic cider, often called the sweet cider, and Teresa makes the hard cider. Their daughter, Margaret Borla, she's the mill's manager and cocktail maker. We'll get to that a little later in the hour. Also later in the hour are conversations with the authors of the book, American Cider, A Modern Guide to a Historic Beverage. But first, you're hearing the sound of apples being pressed into fresh juice at Hogan's Cider Mill. Chet and a first-year cider maker process the apples on a perfect fall Friday morning. What are we looking at right now? What's happening? Well, in cider language, we've created a cheese of cider. (laughs) I don't know where that term came from. (laughs) A cheese? A cheese is a full rack of cider here. So today, we'll be making two cheeses. We'll be doing this again. So what's happening is the, the ground apples are pressing, going through the press cloth, a glorified cheesecloth, which keeps all the seeds and pulp in and all that will come out is juice. Uh, this process on our press is going to make 90 gallons of cider wow. in about an hour from start to finish. So these apples were crushed up? Went through a grinder, and came they... down, basically put into an envelope with the cloths and then a rack upon rack until it's 10 high and then you're at a full cheese. So you have a 10 high and these racks are what? They're they're holding basically three bushel of apples. Okay. So they're big the flat squares with, with, right. with chopped up or crushed up apples crushed wrapped up. in essentially a cheesecloth. I'm sure it's not a yeah. cheesecloth but. Which it costs what a cheesecloth cost. And then it <laughs> and then you're pressing down right now. No it's lifting it up. Oh, lifting up. It's lifting up. Okay. Yeah. Oh, now I see it. Yep. Yeah, it's like uh, at the gas station, the hydraulic pump. Is I guess you're still lifting. pressing, though, right? Right. It's going to basically create a ton of pressure against this. And as it squeezes, the amount of juice that's coming out of here is pretty remarkable. It's really flowing now. You guys do this every single day? No. We make unpasteurized cider. And the law in Connecticut is if you make unpasteurized cider, only the manufacturer can sell it. So years ago, we made a lot of wholesale cider for stands and stores and I mean that we no longer do that. So Chet, just for people who don't understand what that means, the difference between pasteurized and unpasteurized. All right. Unpasteurized ciders, we took the apples, we ground them up, we squeezed the juice out of them. Pasteurized, either it's heated or treated with UV light. Right. I can't get over how small the uh, the cheese has gotten. Yeah, so here here's what I was a bit concerned with. We had a fair amount of Cortland apples in there. Okay. Cortland, when you first pick them, they're good. They start to sit for a little bit. They become pulpy. You'll see how that's not squeezing quite yeah. as well as that. That one layer is that thicker than the layer. rest of the layers, yeah. right? right? And you said these are Cortland apples? What else well, are the apples a, in there? Well, there's 
Cortland in there, there's McIntosh, there's Gala, and there's McCowan in there right now. And then I think we have one, one box of uh, a green apple. This press, yeah. how long has this press been here? Ooh, in the 40s. Wow. Yeah, in the 40s. How long will this sit, this press sit in this pressure like this, this, this cheese well, sit in we're the pressure? Well, it's got about another 10 minutes to run. And oh, wow, we'll, okay. And will you do this more than once a day or just do that 90 we're gallons? We're going to do it twice today. What, what we produce is sweet cider for drinking. Buy it, take it home and drink it. And then some of our production is geared towards filling our hard cider tanks. So some days, that what we're making today will be for sale in the mill this weekend. Okay. I mean, Chad, the last question i got to ask you. I mean, the, the cleaning process of this when you guys are done must just be a beast. It takes longer to, much longer to clean than to make. Yeah. To, I'm, uh, to, I'm looking at it, hearing clean. my wife going, look at the mess you're making. Well, to clean and then sterilize after you clean. You know, uh -huh. It's a process. But the end product makes it all worth it. Yep. Yeah, it does. After the pressing process, the juice flows through large tubes through a fine filter to catch any pulp that might have slipped through the cloth. The juice lands in a stainless steel refrigerated tank which will hold the 200 gallons, yep, 200 gallons of pop that Chet will make and sell between Friday and Sunday. After watching that process, I followed Chet up a very narrow flight of barn stairs to the second floor to see where the process really begins. The room is chock full of apples in crates all over the place. Here, the apples go through a washer where they're spun, clean, and then into the grinder they go. So uh, <laughs> I did the math once. We're so labor intensive. We lift over 160 pounds of apples to create one gallon. Wow. <laughs> wow. It couldn't be much more labor intensive than we are. Here's the thing. You do your workout by doing it, and then you can drink it because you've already worked out and burned the calories, yeah. right? One year, I did it myself. Really? Yeah. I would come down, and I made it into an Olympic event of <laughs> how well I could pour. Could I go down those stairs right. without touching the side? That's so funny. I had countries that didn't even exist participate. East Germany was good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we're standing in the room. This is, I guess, directly above the press, right? Yeah. And so there's a machine sort of situation oh, apple here. apple washer. An apple washer. So which... we're going to go through a washing process. So spinning at a high rate of speed, there's the wheel that grinds them okay you take a peek in there yeah okay so and that turns it into a glorified applesauce kind of 40 pounds and these just you just dump one crate of these right onto this washer and push that one down dump another so we we send three down at a time it crushes them up makes that applesauce and that's what we press yeah grinds them rather than crushes them is there anything to do with that pulp when it's all done when I first came here, we had pig farmers. I was about to say, I think pig, pigs would love it. Pig, Mr. Finn would drive his truck into what's now our store, back up in there, we'd throw the pulp in there. I put it up in the field, and anybody who wants to take it, but it doesn't, the deer eat some of it, and that's yeah. about it. Oh, it makes the deer happy. Yeah. People say, well, can you make fertilizer out of it? And the old timers, when I came here, says, yes, but you have to process it. And they said, well, how do you do that? And they said, feed it to a pig. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the apples the apples that we use Hayward Orchard two miles down the street they were founded in 1920 I believe I go to Granville Mass a 40 minute ride Mountaintop Orchard they were founded in 1914 the Strovich Orchard they were founded in 1918 so I'm dealing with some people some orchards that have 
grown apples for a long time. Any thoughts of growing your own apples ever? We planted 100 trees two years ago. Up until that point, we were founded in 1912. There was never an apple tree here. The beginning of the apple business was you had apples. You would bring them here, because I have the records from 1916. You would bring your apples. They would grind them up. And in 1916, it started at four cents a gallon, the fee for okay. crushing. Uh-huh. And then the mid-year, they raised it to five cents a gallon. Oh. And you would take it home and mostly making hard cider was how it went. So-and-so brought 120 bushel. We owe them 360 gallons of cider. So they were making a lot of cider. Wow, that's a lot I did of the cider. math once. If I sold as much cider as the Hogan brothers did then at my prices, I would make three quarters of a million dollars a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit different business now. Yeah. Huh? Hey, what did they put the cider in? You know, in 1916, what kind of in 1916 was? bottles? Okay. When I bought the place, they had they went to wherever package store or whatever, and it was it was in glass bottles. Wow, that's interesting. And they had a washer for it, but mostly back then it was you came with barrels. Uh-huh. Big I mean, they had progressed to bottles when people were taking, but in those days, the it was barrels. You brought your own barrels, and they filled that. Once the first batch of sweet cider was processed, I sat down with Chet, Teresa, and Margaret in the Red Barn Bar to talk about Hogan Cider Mill, past and future. Well, the mill was founded in 1912 by two brothers, Morris and Richard Hogan. They made apple cider, they grew strawberries, they basically owned the top of Johnny Cake Mountain by the time they were done. (laughs) Um, We bought the mill 30 years ago. Uh, it was an estate sale at the time. Both Hogan brothers had passed away. Uh, the good news was when we bought the mill, we inherited Wendell and Martin, two men who were in their 70s at that time and had a combined 100 years experience wow. working here. I knew nothing. I was a golf professional uh-huh. and became an apprentice cider maker and worked my way up. An apprentice at your own cider mill. How about that? <laughs> exactly. So these two gentlemen are the ones who taught you actually the process and how to do this. Taught me the process of making cider. Yeah. And is that like a, I guess what it's I'm It's not I'm rocket to, science. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> no, seem like it's that hard to figure science. out, right? Um, I remember when we bought the place, a bad apple was defined as half rotten. <laughs> we have a new definition now. No rotten. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, with them teaching you the process of doing this, what... Did you fall in love with it? Did it become something that you said, listen, I'm going to give up the golf professional thing here and and be a professional cider maker now? Or was it the plan to let me learn it and then pay somebody else to run it? Well, golf and cider making kind of dovetailed. Cider making in the fall. My golf business was active in spring and summer and tapered off. I didn't have to give up golf to do cider. It was a great business that had been going forever. So it was to keep it running, and and we certainly improved the business in ways. Started to do more products. The hard cider, which, Teresa, that was basically her idea, was just a godsend to keeping this business going. I'm not sure we we could have survived without hard cider. Wow. Teresa, just talking about hard cider, what was the very first one you made? Just the classic, the basic hard cider. When... As Chet was talking about, we had uh, Wendell Gunn and Martin Sesniak here. And I remember Wendell telling me um, when he was telling me what was what. Now, if somebody comes in and they ask you for the Easter cider, 
it's in the back. Oh. <laughs> and I said, does that seem wise? <laughs> what was the Easter cider? <laughs> Hard cider. Vinegar than, than anything. Hard cider. Yeah. yeah. That they had always, any place that, that made sweet cider would be making hard cider as well. Mm-hmm. But we started doing it with a license in 92. Just the process of making hard cider really quick. I just want to get into that for a second okay. so people understand it. It's not something you really have to add a bunch of yeast to and, and add extra sugar to it. Well, or is it? I brought in an advisor, Connecticut wine guy, Wayne Stitzer, to guide me through the process because I, everybody was telling me how to do it. Every single customer that came in, right. every single person that came in. And it's, as Chet says, it, it's the same as sweet cider. It's not rocket science. Back in the olden days, they would just take the sweet cider and put it in like a wooden barrel and put it in a cave or a root cellar, someplace cool and out of direct sunlight. Mm-hmm. And there's yeast in the air, there's yeast on the skin of the apples, and it would find the sugar, consume it, and the byproduct was alcohol. We pretty much do exactly that same thing, except that we don't use wood. We use stainless steel, because wood can harbor bacteria. Right. And rather than counting on a wild yeast, which they can be fantastic, or they can be seriously funky too. So we introduce a yeast right okay. at, as we fill the tanks that we know is a good match for the apples. And then we seal it and just let nature take its course. I know with beer making, different strands of yeast can change the flavor and adjust things. Is it the same process with making cider? I've used the same yeast since we started, just one that we know is a really good match for apples and we've had a lot of success with. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, beer is a lot more complicated. It really is. Uh, I think any other alcoholic, I, I'm not familiar with them because all I do is hard cider, but it seems like they're a lot more complicated and involved than what we do. Yeah. This beverage has been in New England since the first European settlers came. This was a staple of their diet breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because the water wasn't particularly safe. Mm -hmm. So that was men, women, and children. That's gone on for all these years, and now we're just continuing that same process and honoring that history. How is the community of people who make ciders or orchardists, or, you know, is it a nice community? Does everybody help each other out? I find so, yeah. As a matter of fact, when I was um, looking into getting our licensing, which can be daunting, you know, it's a lot of paperwork. Sure. And um, I knew that Clyde Cider Mill up in Mystic did hard cider. And I just shot in the dark. I gave them a call. And Annette and her husband, Harold, they just led me right through the process. She said that when she had started taking over from her parents at um, their mill, there was nobody to help her. So she swore she would just reach out to anybody who needed help. She said, just pay it forward. That's so, great. yeah. Very much so. That's so cool to hear when everybody gets along like that. I like that. Chet, what are some varieties that you prefer to make cider with? Well, you're at the mercy of the season a little bit. The earlier apples, not as much sugar. What I prefer is when you can get a mix of five or six varieties, some apples being sweeter and some on the tartar side, Mm -hmm. and then the flavor seems to get more complex that way. I've experimented and made cider with 
true bitter cider apples. Ooh, interesting. In England and other areas, well, that's that's what you should make cider of. The problem with that, it's undrinkable. It's regular <laughs> cider. In the trade, the apples are called spitters. You'd bite into it and spit it out. So we're we're using a a wide variety of, of eating apples mostly. You'd mentioned you're getting apples from Massachusetts, and they're all relatively close by, right? Yes. Is there a blend of apples you like to, that you prefer to use, or does it change? Well, if I could have my ideal blend, which I couldn't make right now because one of the apples comes out later, it would be a mix of Northern Spy, McCowan, Macintosh, and a Gala. That way I'd have a pretty complex blend. Wow, that sounds great. The story of Johnny Appleseed, they didn't plant apples for eating. All those trees were planted to make hard cider. To make hard cider. <laughs> One of the oldest beverages in the country, isn't it? Yes. So I know you guys have mentioned how important it is to kind of honor the past with cider making and almost paying homage to it. I guess what's what's the future for you guys when it comes to cider making? Well, I see a future where I don't lift all the boxes. <laughs> and I see a future where I'm not going into the orchard at 6.30 in the morning in the dark in November. <laughs> I mean, I don't see any changes in how we'll make the cider. You know, the equipment's not going to change. The process is not going to change. The apples aren't really going to change. We're just going to post about it more on social media, Who's lifting them might change. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you asked about the future of the cider mill, and I think I'm looking at it right now. My daughter Margaret started working with us this year. Uh, She's brought in a whole new demographic. Her knowledge and use of social media has been phenomenal. She's come up with this drink called the Drunken Donut, which I opposed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to tasting that, by the way. (laughs) And it's just, it's taken off. People are coming from a younger group than we used to have. It's more folks my daughter's age and younger that are coming to experience not just the cider, but the whole atmosphere. I mean, it's... I keep coming back to the word history, but every single building that you walk in, it not only looks historic, it feels it. You know, you could just feel almost all the people that have lived here before, worked here before, and this was their life. It definitely does. It's a great Instagram backdrop for the younger generation to come, um, enjoy the cider, take pictures on our historic property, and who doesn't love hard cider mixed with sweet cider with a donut on top. That's where we've had people driving two hours to come get it. So I think the drink kind of speaks for itself with, with this one. So, Margaret, is that the future moving forward, you think? Is it making different drinks with the cider itself and, you know, kind of focusing more on that Instagram-type generation? Well, what I think is crazy is we've been making cider over 100 years, but it took the drunken donut to get the next generation (laughs) to come. So I think, you know, we're going to keep evolving. Who has a better job than someone who gets to, you know, make up drinks with cider like i think i'm kind of living the dream right now i have to say <laughs> i love that i'm about to be living the dream because my job's gonna be to taste some of these drinks here in a moment think we could take a walk over there awesome sounds good to me you just heard plum's conversation with the family behind hogan cider mill he's about to taste a boozy cider donut situation so right about now i'm wishing i was on this road trip later in the hour we will get schooled in the history of cider with the authors of the book american cider I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, I make Marisol very jealous. 
You get that first sip and then you bite into that donut and all that boozy goodness that it's holding inside. Challenge accepted. (laughs) You're listening to Seasons. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to my visit to Hogan's Cider Mill in Burlington. This place is beautiful. The mill manager, Margaret Borla, and I are in the tap room. And it's time to taste what all the buzz is about. Listeners, meet the Drunken Donut. So tell us what's in this drink. So this drink is made, um, served over ice. It's half sweet cider and then half of our December frost hard cider. Mm -hmm. The December frost is a later in the season pressing when the apples are sweeter Uh and have more residual sugar. So it's less dry than our classic cider. It just complements the sweet cider so nicely that people have said, you made my drink without alcohol. There's no booze in here. Wow. Um, and then it is topped with a cider donut and Hogan's Harvest sprinkles and whipped cream. This is fantastic. It's worth every calorie. <laughs> I was about to say, I think I should probably do some more yoga. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have had some um, fitness classes out in our outdoor tap room, so you could always have a drunken donut. And now, do, they do, the, do they? Is part of the fitness class they have to balance a drunken donut in their hand throughout the entire class, and then they can drink it when it's over? Well, we let you take a sip every <laughs> 10 minutes or so. Keep, keep them happy. <laughs> You know, you talked about uh, getting those later harvest apples, and I know in the wine world, um, a lot of sweeter wines are made with late harvest grapes because the grapes go through the first frost, which leaves back a lot of residual sugars and takes a lot of the moisture out, so it's almost like a sweeter tasting to begin with. I wonder if that's the same process with the apples. Exactly. They go through that first frost and leave back residual sugars. So the first time we made the December frost hard cider, it was kind of a happy accident okay. because that had happened to the apple crop. So we've been recreating that. For, I'd say we've been doing this one about seven or eight years uh-huh. now. And it's a crowd favorite, the December yeah. frost. I can't wait. I'm excited. So if you're hearing something in the background right now, that's the press actually pressing apples. Probably two rooms away from us and a floor down. But hey, you're at a cider mill. That's what you want to hear. So this drink is in a, it's like a 16-ounce glass. And we've got both the ciders in there. They're kind of floated on top of each other a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have an entire, I'm guessing that is not a healthy donut. That is a Hogan's apple cider donut. Okay. <laughs> Beautiful. We had to go to a one donut limit last weekend (laughs) per person because the crowds were so crazy. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I had people begging, I drove an hour, can I please have two? Now, are these baked on site? Yes. That's great. All right, Margaret, so I'm looking at this delicious beverage. What's the best plan of attack here to taste it? Right for the straw first, go for the donut, what do we do? So this drink usually comes with a handful of napkins as well (laughs) because it definitely is not neat. I like to, you know, take a sip first to get that initial taste. And then, um, you know, your donuts just hovering in the cider right in the top. So you get that first sip and then you bite into that donut and all that boozy goodness that it's holding inside. Challenge accepted. (laughs) These are the things I have to do for my job. Here we go. Oh, wow. So you really get that. It's not overly sweet, which is what I was afraid was going to happen. Not at all. Fantastic. I'm going to push my straw all the way down to the bottom. The sweeter cider's at the bottom, is that right? Mm-hmm. Let's see the difference now. Oh man. So you kind of get layers of yeah, flavor in it. That's delicious. And so then we want to take the donut, take a little bite of this, make it in there. 
The breakfast of champions right there. That is delicious. <laughs> That's really good. It's beautiful how the sweetness from that cider donut mixes with that top layer of cider that's the, the non-sweet cider they go hand in hand that's really really good so glad i went to grad school to become a drunken donut creator <laughs> has really paid off with writing those tap somebody lists. has to right <laughs> mm. what a great idea and you've had a lot of success with this drink right oh yes definitely our most popular um drink so far we also in the summertime we do spike slushies with the cider those are pretty pretty popular as well wow um we do cider shots we have our crazy caramel apple shot that we've been doing lately caramel apple shot yes so that's okay. made with our drier cider the classic cider um caramel syrup and then a splash of sweet cider wow so we we tell our guests get the flannels on it's time to get the party started let's do, i love it let's do some apple shots so a lot of these drinks are made purely or are they all made purely just with cider here uh, on site well we try to use what we have um and you know why use something else if we have this great cider on premise yeah. and it you know really makes an awesome mixer that's delicious i started my day at the mill by watching chet press apples for cider i thought it was fitting to end my visit by tasting literally the fruits of that labor Margaret was my guide through a flight of delicious ciders. So we're going to start with the classic cider. This is our bare bone cider. It's on the drier side. Which it's made it? with an earlier pressing okay. when the apples are a little bit more tart. So that has a nice dry finish to it. Okay, let me give it a taste. Yeah, it's nice and dry. Almost refreshing. I don't, you, you expect that bubbliness to come in, but there's no carbonation at all, right? Exactly. That one's an easy sipping. Um, it's, you know, our staple cider, so it's very popular. I'd say two people that, you know, are just getting into cider or um, have been big beer drinkers, the classic cider is probably the most popular with them. Okay. Yeah, that's delicious. It's very refreshing, and it's not sweet. Like, I always think of cider as being very sweet when I drink it, but that is bone dry, crisp, and delicious and refreshing. It was like sitting outside. Yeah, nice crisp fall day in a glass. For sure. So our next cider I'm going to have you try is our Hogan's Honey Cider. Okay. This starts with the classic cider as the base, and then five gallons of native honey are added to every 200 gallons of cider. So wow. it gives the cider a nice smooth finish to it. Oh, it really does. And you get those floral notes in the background of it. So it's dry. It's not sweet at all. Mm -hmm. But you get those floral notes from the honey. Uh, in the background on, on your palate. That's really nice. I like that one too. Yeah, we describe that as uh, take your taste buds on a mellow trip. I, I need to go get my flannel shirt. I didn't bring it. And I probably <laughs> should take my chef coat off and get a flannel shirt and hang out. This is this is delicious. I could really enjoy this. Flannel, flannel or tie-dye, either one. <laughs> you'll fit in at Hogan's. It all works. That's fantastic. What's that one called? Uh, That's Hogan's Honey. Hogan's Honey. And it's finished with honey. I like that. The next one I'll have you try is our cranberry cider. This was okay. just bottled this week. We're starting to gear up into, you know, the holidays, Thanksgiving. Um, this one starts with the classic as the base, and then um, the cranberry goes in after fermentation. Kind of has a very cranberry forward taste with a nice light apple finish. Wow. That's delicious. It's, it's pink. Yeah, it kind of, you know, it looks like a blush wine, but that's the, the cranberries in there. That's really yummy, too. I like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't sure because I know you guys, like we said before, there's no carbonation. I wasn't sure how I'd feel about that, but it's not needed at all. This is delicious. Exactly. And at 12%, you know, the carbonation isn't necessary. 
12%, really? Yes, they're all 12%. Check, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the last cider I'm going to have you try today, we have, you know, over 15 different varieties that wow. we make. So we have something for everyone. Okay. But this one is my favorite, and it's named after my mother and I because it's two ginger cider. <laughs> and as the the redheads in residence at, the, at Hogan's, um, the cider is our special blend. We say double the ginger, double the fun. And that one <laughs> is a little bit on the sweeter side than the other ones you've tried, but it has, you know, that delicious ginger flavor that complements the apples nicely. Yeah, the ginger really comes forward on this, which is kind of nice. Hits you in the front. There's a hint, slightest hint of that ginger pepperiness on the back of your throat, mm-hmm. but it still has the crispness of the apples to it. I mean, this is, these are all fantastic. These, these are delicious. I think I would probably choose, I think I can choose. I think I would drink all of these. These are amazing. And what I love, they're all different. There's different characteristics to all of them. Well, one day you'll have to come try all of them and we'll drive you home in the golf cart. Yeah, I'll be here tonight. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> These are delicious. Well, Margaret, thank you for sharing with us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. What an amazing time hanging out and learning so much about cider and seeing the history here at Hogan's. Teresa, Margaret, we really appreciate you guys having us here. We were trying to find Chet, but I'm pretty sure he's pressing apples That's somewhere. That's what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, he's working the press right now. Lifting apple crates. We really appreciate you guys having us and sharing what you do. It's beautiful, it's delicious, it's amazing out here. You've really opened my eyes to cider. And we appreciate that. So glad you guys could come out and join us. Yeah, thanks. It was great having you here. Really appreciate you coming. Thank you. That was Margaret Borla and Teresa Clifford Dunlop of Hogan Cider Mill on Spielman Highway in Burlington. You can see photos and video of Plum's visit to the mill on Instagram. We're at CT Public. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get a history lesson on cider from the authors of the book, American Cider. It's a very compelling thing. It was part of our history, more deeply ingrained than I ever imagined. And to see a resurgence today is is, uh, extremely inspiring. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned, I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Earlier in the show, we talked about the cider making process and the history of Hogan's Cider Mill in Burlington, Connecticut. We asked our next guest to shed some light more broadly on the vast history of cider in our country. I was blown away. Dan Pucci is one of the nation's leading cider experts, and Craig Cavallo is a food writer and owner of Golden Russet Cafe and Grocery in the Hudson Valley in New York. They're the authors of American Cider, A Modern Guide to a Historic Beverage. Before we dive into cider's history, we ask the authors if cider is having a moment. Craig starts us off. The past decade, I think we've seen something like a sevenfold increase in the amount of commercial cideries in the country. There's now over a thousand cideries and there's one in every state in the United States, which is telling in many regards that there's kind of a growing market for this product. It's shape shifting and it's growing, but there's sort of it's in a transient space. It's kind of, it's entering the marketplace. It's taking up a, a larger portion of the beverage category. Generally speaking, there is just a huge explosion this is the past decade or so. Talk to us a little bit about why apples, why not a different fruit? Um, was, was that easy to come by? Where, where do we start? The short answer is when Europeans came to this country, they brought something that was a familiar relic from their homes and apples are prevalent there. 
they brought seeds with them. Seeds are very lightweight. They're transportable. They planted them when they got here and whatever grew, grew. It's important to note apples don't grow true to seed. Any seed that's planted from an apple will grow and be a completely unique variety because of the genomes. There are more in apples than twice as many in apples than there are in humans. Uh, so you have this proliferation of fruit. As Europeans got here, setting up small homestead orchards, it was something that you could plant once. It was a perennial crop. Uh, it didn't require much labor because there wasn't labor to be found largely. This varied throughout the country, but, but apples just grew here. The, the climate, it was kind of a happenstance of climate, geography, location, apples grew. The ones that didn't taste good out of hand were fermented. Uh, the ones that did taste good, they might've been you know, used for XYZ, sauce, butter, pie, baking. But it, it's kind of, we owe a lot just to the sheer diversity and resilience of the apple that we're you know, having this conversation now. Dan, I got to ask you, I learned in all the preparation for this episode that we're doing of the show, the term cider actually is, is a term for the fermented juice of apples, right? Like it's not like, like hard cider is not really a thing. It's, it's cider. Yeah. Yes. Historically, if you look back in the history, like it's always referred to as, as cider in the late 19th century. You begin seeing it start being used as a non-alcoholic fresh juice, as we, as we refer to it today. But in our book, and in the last five years, it's always been an alcoholic beverage. Once it's fermented, it becomes cider. In your book, you get into the fact that the first enslaved Africans tended the earliest orchards in the Southeast. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind explaining to us and our listeners who Jupiter Evans was and the impact. Uh, that Jupiter Evans had on cider. Sure. Yeah, Dan, I can start and you can yeah. feel free to, to fill in. This has actually changed since we read the book. It has, it has. And it's one of the most exciting things for us about cider is that this this book was a journey for both of us. And I think our education, you know, we didn't write the book because we had all this knowledge in our brains. We learned kind of in real time as we were writing and we weren't cider experts. And so we wrote a book. We sort of became cider experts in writing a book. But one of the things that we found is, first of all, a lack of information and documentation about, you know, anything other than the, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant narrative, because that's the Europeans that came here and settled. It's the dominating, the dominating culture. And so that's the one that was celebrated and in, in recorded and got most attention. But that's not to say that there weren't Native Americans or indigenous communities growing fruit, not necessarily in an orchard setting that was introduced by Europeans. But in the case of enslaved Africans in the South, Jupiter Evans being a person who was sort of the name, his name came up and there's some cideries that have, you know, paid homage to his legacy. Um, but we've since found uh, Darlene Hayes, who lives in Sonoma County, California, does a lot of work for cider and education and recently wrote an article that celebrates George and Ursula Granger, who were enslaved Africans owned by Thomas Jefferson, bought late 1700s. Um, but there's evidence and recorded evidence of Jefferson writing in his journals that he left the work to, as he called him, Great George, through some of the records that Darlene has found and made public in her article that is in Malice, which is a quarterly zine about apples. George Granger is writing about the yield from this amount of fruit, and it just shows his expertise and experience. And it's one in likely a very many situations where enslaved Africans had uh, this knowledge that they were using and fermenting. And of course, the, you know, aristocratic, the slave owners may have been taking most of the credit or just sort of neglecting the work that their slaves were doing. Dan, do you want to add to that? In the book, we talk a lot about kind of enslaved cider makers in the Southeast, but like Craig and I both live in Hudson Valley and there's a great deal of 
slavery taking place in Hudson Valley at the same time and the involvement of those people in production of orchards and or people who owned the first orchards in New York State and in New England, the large orchards, basically made their money off of the slave trade. And then in, and when slavery became illegal in New England, they basically reinvested that, that money into, um, they sold their slaves to the South and reinvested their money into orchards, orchards and things. It's quite a change. I want to talk a little bit about cider history in New England. But before we get there, in the book, you say, you know, while all apples can make cider, some apples excel at it. God, there's 15,000 different varieties of apple. What is it that really makes excellent cider? So, uh, yeah, I'll tackle this question. So, this is Dan. Yeah, there are 15,000 varieties of apples just grown that have been grown in the last 40 years in North America. Not all of them are grown commercially today, but there's a huge diversity there. And over that time period, some apples have been selected for by humans for their esteemed cider-making qualities, either apples like Hughes crab or apple varieties like Harrison, which, which, which the whole industry of cider around, around New York, New Jersey was built around, or apple varieties like Kingston Black or Davinet, which are from the UK, that have been imported here. Uh, and these varieties are high in tannins, which means the juice themselves have phenolic structures to them that you don't necessarily wouldn't necessarily find if you juiced a Macintosh or a Fuji. They basically have their value and is really in their fermented product. And they really don't have any other commercial value besides resulting cider. And that being said, in the last few years now, we have an increasing amount of new cider varieties that are native to here. So largely, besides some oddball American varieties, most cider apples were imported, developed in Europe and brought here. But now we're getting more local varieties that are are hyper-focused and probably grow better in our environment, in our terroir, and they um, make for very good, very good distinct cider. So I hear these words like higher tannins and things like that. It makes me think of you know, the apple being a little bit more tart, less sweet, not as much sugar content in it. Is that right? Yeah, it's not necessarily sugar content because the sugar content would convert over to alcohol. It's more about the other phenolic character. Like what's the other things going on there? So you take an apple like Honeycrisp. Honeycrisp tastes sweet, has all this texture to it in a fresh apple. But when you ferment it, it basically has, there's nothing, left, there's nothing much left behind. Once you, get, once you get rid of the sugar, you get rid of the crispness, you got some like watery solution there. But some of the other varieties, when you ferment them and get and you convert the sugar into alcohol, the remaining product retains a lot of interesting character to it. That is so interesting. I just need to know now because this is driving me crazy. What are your favorite apples? <laughs> right now, the farm of my house has just put out their Beldebas scoops, and I'm obsessed with their, with their Beldebas scoops. It's an old Dutch eating apple, and it's um, unbelievable. Apparently, my dog agrees. <laughs> so, sorry. Craig, what about you? Living in such an apple-centric region, we have, uh, there's a great farm stand not too far from where I live called Montgomery Place, and they have dozens of varieties that they planted starting in the 80s, and they have a bunch, and just yesterday I had an apple called Little Rosy Bloom that was developed by Albert Eder, who was a horticulturist living in, in California, and it was an apple of his that I hadn't heard of, but another creation of his is Wix and Crab Apple that cider makers love and, and ferments really well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this little rosy bloom had yesterday was just like full of flavor, super juicy, tons of crunch, but like it almost tasted like, um, it was like caramel or orange or something, but it was just like very distinct and very delicious. But short answer is my favorite apple is whatever one I'm currently eating. <laughs> I like that answer. We talked a little, we mentioned New England before and what are some of those factors that made New England particularly well suited for cider making? It goes back to, in part, geography and climate. Um, the Connecticut River Valley 
New England has three main growing regions. It's the Vermont side of Lake Champlain, Connecticut River Valley, and then the coast, there's kind of, you know, in Maine and just kind of the coastal plains, you might say, where most of the fruit growing happens. Uh, and apples thrive there. And in those three different places, it's different soils and you get different characters, but they all support a very dynamic orchard and, and fruit culture. Um, one of the things we found in the research in the book that made New England so dynamic, it's sort of, you know, you take six states it's in a fairly compact area. It doesn't take up a ton of land, you know, speaking of the greater mass of the, the country. And you had a lot of waterways. You had sort of as canals and roadways and, and taverns were developing. You had this kind of like this newly developing transient market. And it was a great way for apples and cider and the development of this kind of mercantile economy sort of happened in tandem with farmers beginning to produce a surplus crop. So they had a little bit more money. You had a, this understanding of uh, land management and uh, understanding how the economics of farming work. But um, it was kind of unique to the region, this tight geographically speaking space. And a lot of, you know, mobility is mill towns were developing. People were kind of like centering on these developing urban areas. But historically, even long before then, since the 1600s, Cider was made and taverns were very prominent fixtures in the New England countryside and, and cider was certainly a big part of that, if not even orchards planted uh, next to taverns and the tavern you know, owner making their own cider. But yeah, distinct and unique in that way. Yeah, the prime time for cider in this country is basically like 17, early 1700s to like 100 years, like 1720 to 1820 is basically like the prime time of cider in, the, in North America. And after 1820 or so, we... Um, rising temperance movement and um, industrial capitalism and basically like creating larger cities allowed, made beer to be a better, more suitable alcoholic option for most of the country because um, it's a lot easier to, to make and produce beer in an urban environment than it is to produce cider in an urban environment. So New England kind of developed in that kind of that cradle of that through that prism. So cider remained a part of it. And today cider is a really important part of New England because New England farmers had Apple farmers have in the hardest times in the last three decades. Their prices haven't increased. They've actually gone down a lot. Um, like in the 70s, a bushel of apples would sell for $40 on the wholesale market. And that's the same price they receive today. Wow. So it has a huge, a huge decline in value of your product. So cider has come out as a real necessity for orchards to try and create new value and find new enterprises and, and pathways for their products and for their, for their goods. So... New England really felt the real bunch of that that drop before anybody else did. So it really kind of innovated more quickly to the alcoholic products. Can we talk a little bit about the role religion had? Religion is really important in terms of understanding. Religion and social movements is really important to understand like the decline of cider. We call it cider being this peak period around 1720 to 1820, which might kind of arbitrary date there. After the Revolutionary War, the kind of re religious setup basically went away with the king. And the new order that came into place was a little more scrappy. And as new, mostly New Englanders moved west and embraced uh, in places like Western New York, they embraced new religions and temperance became a, a part of those new religions. We talk about temperance as being an also a way of, of a really important way of social control in these new territories of Western, of the Western United States, but also in urban centers on the East Coast of controlling new immigrants who are uh, to this country, who are Irish and German and probably Catholic, uh, and therefore were viewed as uh, subversive. And the thing was that those new people weren't cider drinkers, and the people who were the New Englanders and the 
white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who were here beforehand were the cider drinkers, and they oftentimes adopted tampon. So cider almost defeated itself in that time period. A lot of the time of year, we read, we read tons of cider articles coming out, and a lot of them talk about how prohibition killed cider. Cider was long dead way before prohibition took place. As you think about a mobilizing nation, especially a young one, fledgling like 1780s, 1790s, um, but into the 1820s, you know, and that stands today, people bring ideas with them. So the Puritan values that established New England, as people started moving west, the Erie Canal opened in 1825, and it brought not just goods, it brought people and their ideas. Those ideas moved west, and religious values very much, like Dan was saying, just shaped sort of some of the understanding of the social customs. It was a way to, uh, it was around the same time you had industrialization and you you had uh, concentrated workforces. And if you are a business owner and your workforce is drinking, then you can't be productive and you can't make money. But if we can target alcohol is the devil that kind of gets in the way of productivity and economic gain, well then great, don't drink. So it sort of was this, it just became the scapegoat, an easy scapegoat for kind of just culturally accepted that drinking was was the devil. <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm never going to look at apples or cider the same way. <laughs> I'm going to look at, I'm suddenly going to hold up my, my Fuji apple and think critical race theory and the industrial revolution and why I should probably not have another glass of tequila before <laughs> <laughs> I, I make dinner. Um, I wonder if you could dispel or buttress the myth of one Johnny Appleseed. Sure. How does he figure into the legend and lore of, of cider? Yeah, he, uh, he existed. He's a real human. He was born in Massachusetts in the 18th century, and he moved west. He settled and ultimately died in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He did plant apple seeds, but I think he's more, more than a horticulturalist. He's kind of just this countercultural figure. And as we move through time and our culture changes, he's kind of always there for us to you know, represent our agrarian roots. But it's important to understand, too, that he was doing this at a time when pomology and the science and understanding and studying and, you know, academics behind fruit growing was a very much a growing trend in the country. And people were beginning to understand apples on a level that they had not. So his contributions, while he certainly trees grew on his behalf, apple trees, they weren't really commercially viable. Incoming pioneers might take advantage of the fruit if the trees tasted good the seedlings, they might keep them. But if they weren't, a lot of his seedling uh, were kind of, you know, what's called top work, where you graft onto the existing root structure, and you grow a desired variety that maybe like Rome Beauty or Newtown Pippin, or other varieties that were in vogue and very popular in, I guess, the early 19th century. So he existed, but I think he more is spun from mythic cloth. Oh, yeah, Dan, go ahead. He's an important figure for the culture of the time of the wild apple culture that existed. There's an amazing uh, short story from, from Thoreau in the 1860s that kind of eulogizes this wild apple culture. So he's really important to that. He's not a foundational member of the contemporary industrial cider orchard culture that exists in the world today. Craig, as someone who owns a cafe and cooks for a living, uh, how often do you use cider in your cooking? A bit more now as we're getting into fall and more, you know, I celebrate cider year round and drink it and but I'll start cooking with a little bit more with bigger hunks of protein as I start to braise meat. Cider's a good a good vessel to braise anything. Sautéing apples with onions and uh, just makes a great accompaniment to pork or chicken or often in many dishes that need like a deglazing or some bit of liquid other than water or wine or stock. 
you can almost use it in place of a, of a wine when you're deglazing a pan or something, which is kind of cool. Absolutely. You know, uh, you talked about braising. What a great liquid to braise. And braising is, for anybody who doesn't know out there, is cooking at a lower temperature for a longer period of time in a flavorful liquid. Usually you want to do like a tougher piece of meat and something like that. But when you do it, like you think like a braised short rib or something like that, it cut, it's fall off the bone. It's absolutely delicious. And I couldn't agree more. Doing a pork shoulder and uh, a little bit of cider is absolutely phenomenal. You know, for desserts, you can reduce it down with a great syrup to put on things to finish or a great caramel out of it as well. That sounds delicious. Before we let our cider experts go, Dan wanted to encourage listeners not to be afraid to try a cider that might be unfamiliar to you. There's lots of great craft cider out there to explore. And Craig had this note to end on. To buy a bottle of cider or to, you know, to go pick an apple, you're kind of part of this larger community of people who are who are very passionate and working very hard. And, and for us, it's as much about the community of people as it is the actual end product. It's a very compelling thing. It was part of our history, uh, more deeply ingrained than I ever imagined. To see a resurgence today is, is uh, extremely inspiring. And yeah, don't be afraid of anything and read the labels, learn what you're drinking, drink it with friends, drink more of it, and support the people doing the work, making it. That was Craig Cavallo and Dan Pucci. They are the authors of American Cider, A Modern Guide to a Historic Beverage. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Don't forget to check out Ryan Carrington's photos of our trip to Hogan Cider Mill. We're at CT Public on Instagram. And drop by Hogan's this fall for the drunken donut. I know I'll be going back for seconds for sure. It was delicious. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanakin and Kitty Talarski. Our interns are Abby Levine and Dylan Reyes. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.